Well, good morning once again, everyone. If you'd like to open your Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to read from verse 1 through to verse 16. Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 1, and this is God's word. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower, earthly regions? He who ascended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and the craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love, as each part does its work. Let's pray. Father, it is a great joy and delight that we can come together this today, the Lord's day, the day where you rose again from the dead to worship you. And we pray that you would pour out your spirit upon us, open our ears, open our minds, open our hearts, that we might have the obedience of faith. And Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think the Church of Jesus Christ is one of the most amazing, but also one of the most despised institutions on the face of the earth. 
It's amazing in that it has stood the test of time. And it now exists, as I said before, in every nation on the earth. Which in and of itself is really quite amazing, isn't it? I mean, entire empires have risen and fallen, but the Christian church has remained, even if many have confidently announced its imminent demise. Mark Twain was once believed to have said, although I think this is a little bit apocryphal and not as accurate as it could be, but after reading his obituary in a newspaper, he said, reports of my death are greatly exaggerated. And a similar kind of thing, though, could be said in response to what many people say about the church. Reports of its death or its non, imminent non-existence are greatly exaggerated. In nearly every generation, there is someone, some outspoken unbeliever who declares that in just a couple more years, Christianity will be no more. And yet, it continues to have this incredible way of continuing on. You'd almost think that it's supernaturally sustained or something like that. Not only that, but its influence continues to positively permeate throughout society. Uh, from schools, to hospitals, to aged care facilities, to caring for the most vulnerable. Uh, one of the hospitals in New South Wales, which belongs to the Presbyterian Church of Australia and is unique, is a hospital called Alawa, which is specifically designed to look after children with severe disabilities. Uh, maybe they were physically abused as babies and so they therefore require full-time hospital care or maybe they suffered some kind of horrific childhood disease but it means that they need around-the-clock care 24-7. And the Presbyterian Church of New South Wales runs this at a loss every year. But it's not just in the West that this has happened. The Church of Jesus Christ through Africa, South America, Asia, continues to grow and expand. And in fact, they're already talking about the leaders for the next generation for the Christian Church will come not from the West, but from Asia. Already now, South Korea is sending more missionaries than any other part of the world. Last week, uh, about this time, like I said, I was at this tiny Lahu village on the border of Thailand and Myanmar. And it was incredible to not only witness their faith, but to experience the reality that we are all one in Christ Jesus. There is not Jew or Gentile, slave or free, even male or female, but in Christ, all of those dividing barriers are broken down. We pray for peace in the Middle East, but ultimately it's the gospel that brings peace. We want to pray, don't we, for the spread of the gospel. For Israel's true Messiah has come. Afterwards, our church last week, uh, we as a church sat down and for this simple but delicious lunch while the rain was pouring down outside. And it was a wonderful expression 
of the truth that we are all brothers and sisters in Christ, even though we come from different parts of the world. We were walking down the street uh, earlier in the week and one of the students was saying to me, oh, that lady that just passed us on a motorbike was making a slur at you. I was like, oh, really? <laughs> we weren't doing anything obnoxious as tourists or anything like that. But every culture has that sense, don't they, of somebody other coming to them. And she said, oh, yeah, for long, for long, just too many foreigners, too many foreigners. But what struck me all week is that in Christ, we're not foreigners, are we? Well, we're not foreigners at least to one another. We are foreigners in this world. This world, we, we don't belong here. We're aliens and strangers as we walk through this world. But in Christ, you and I are not foreigners to one another. No matter what our background, culturally, socially, whatever, we're one in Christ Jesus. The church is also greatly despised um, by some sections of society, though, and they actively try to do everything they can to get rid of it. From the very beginning, there were people like Saul who murderously tried to destroy the church, and there are still so many secular humanists today that try to do the same. People like Richard Dawkins and others who sort of go by the mantra, the mantra, there is no God and I hate him. Now, there are many reasons for that. Some are just because they hate Christianity and what it stands for. I think that's fundamentally what it's about. But to others, if we're honest, it's because tragically the church has done, um, often has not lived up to its calling. In particular, certain individuals have caused tremendous pain and trauma, injury, either emotionally, spiritually, or as we've seen in recent decades, sexually. And as a result, some people want nothing to do with the church. They often still believe in God. They would even define themselves as being spiritual, but they never really want to go to church. The thing we need to remember, though, is that the church is absolutely central to God's plan. In fact, the scriptures tell us the church is Christ's body. You can't love Christ and not his body, the church. Back in chapter 3, if you have your Bibles open, you'll remember that uh, we learnt that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is being made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal power, which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that incredible? All of heaven looks down at us on earth, this motley crew of people, and says, how did God do that? Isn't that incredible? Because that takes the power of God. So to reject the church is to reject what God himself is committed to. More than that, it's to reject which his own son died to redeem. Now, there is a saying in ministry that it would be Easy to minister. It would be easy to go to church if it wasn't for people. People make things hard. People make things messy. People 
make things complicated. We all know and love, or we should, 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast. It used to be said often at marriages because it was talking about love, but it's really relating to church. And we should be able to say, Derek is patient, Angie's kind, Mark doesn't envy, Michael doesn't boast. It's a passage that's for us. The irony is, people are what makes Christian ministry, Christian ministry. It's what it's all about. Without people, there would be no church. There would just be empty buildings. There would, we would just be puppets, or even worse, machines. The passage before us today, though, I think greatly challenges and encourages us in this regard. It challenges us in that it urges us as the church to live lives consistent with the calling that we've received in the gospel. It's a reflection of the God whom we worship. But it also gives us hope that God is not only for us, but he's also continuing to make his church survive even in the midst of tremendous odds. Because let's face it, if, it wasn't, if the church wasn't being supernaturally empowered, it would fail. It would not have even started, let alone continued. It should remind us of the words of the Lord Jesus Christ who said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, if you take a look at your sermon outlines, you'll see that there are four sections to this particular passage. And they can be summarised by four key distinct terms. And that is charity, unity, diversity and maturity. And so the first point then is that of charity or in particular love. Have a look with me again at verses 1 and 2. Because you'll see that Paul wants us to live lives that are worthy of our calling. The first three chapters have been all about what Christ has done for us. The last three chapters of Ephesians are all about what we should do for God in response. What will that actually look like, though? Well, if we want to, in any real way, reflect the grace that we've been given, then according to verse 2, it's going to imply four specific practical things. And they are humility, gentleness, patience, and then finally, putting up with one another. Or, if I could put it more politely, forbearance. This particular list could have actually been quite, uh, I think would have been quite radical. It still is, and countercultural to those who it was first written to as well as to us today. For instance, did you know that the concept of lowliness was despised in the ancient world? John Stott uh, makes the comment that the Greeks never used their word for humility in a context of approval. 
still less of admiration. Humility was a vice, not a virtue. He said, instead, they meant it as an abject, servile, subservient attitude, the crouching submissiveness of a slave. That's what humility meant to the Greeks. He goes on to say, not till Jesus Christ uh, came was a true humility recognised as a virtue, for he humbled himself. And only he, among the world's religious and ethical teachers, has set before us as our model a little child. That's one of the greatest characteristics about the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? His humility. Later on, can I just say, it's the opposite to the devil. What's at the heart, the spirit of the devil and all he tempts us with? Pride. Later on in the chapter, the Apostle Paul will talk about how Jesus descended all the way from heaven where he had been from all eternity. God in unapproachable light. And he didn't just come here to walk around the planet as a tourist to investigate. You know, much like perhaps sometimes a member of the royal family may visit our shores. No, Jesus descended to the lower earthly regions where he was crucified, died, and was buried. And that means that his humility knew no limits. How far should we be willing as Christians then, as followers of Jesus, as receivers of his humility and his grace, how far should we go in humbling ourselves before other people to being their servant, to being their slave, to being their prisoner. Knowing how much the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us frees us, doesn't it, to relate to one another in this way. One of the most special times I had just the last week, in, we were preaching through the book of James, was talking about how we use our tongue. And some of the Thai men there that were students were said how challenged they were. They come to morning worship every morning and uh, they praise God with their lips and yet they go home and they speak harshly to their wives. And they said they were so convicted about this uh, that uh, they had tears in their eyes, that they would be so inconsistent in this regard. And so I said to them, well, what do you think you should do? Do you, you think you... Oh, well, definitely we should change the way we speak to our wives, they said. I said, you know what else I think you should do? You should go home and ask your wives for forgiveness. Now, that's a really radical thing in that culture. You would humble yourself before a woman, your wife. Absolutely. And you know what? They all did. They went home... And they apologised and they asked for forgiveness for speaking harshly. That's the grace of the gospel, isn't it? That's the grace that God's grace gives us to be confident in owning our sin and humbling ourselves before others. We can never serve two masters. But we can actually say, I should say, we can never serve others more than we have been served ourselves. 
We can only give to others what we ourselves have received. Let me just say it again because I think it's really important. We can never serve others more than we have been served ourselves. Why do we love God? Because he first loved us. And that's why we should be gentle and patient and forbearing (laughs) because that's what God has done for us. There's this great passage in 2 Samuel chapter 16. It's where David is being pelted with rocks and dirt by this rascal, (laughs) uh, this guy called Shimei. And Shimei couldn't stand the fact that David was now king over Israel instead of Saul, um, to which clan he himself belonged. And so David, as he's walking along with all of his men, um, he's just being pelted with dust and rocks and his men just cry out and say to him, shall we just put this dog to death? David, though, bears up under this unjust suffering in a way that I think is astounding because rather than just sending one of his men to kill him, David endures the assault, entrusting himself to God. Charity is at the very heart of all true Christian fellowship, isn't it? But charity is not so much an abstract ideal, but if I can put it this way, a dirty, messy, costly way of relating to one another in the here and now. It sounds good in theory. (laughs) It's really hard in practice. About being patient with those that are irksome. Gentle with those who frustrate or even antagonize you. Gentle. But most of all, humble with those who in your heart of hearts you are tempted to look down on in self-righteousness and pride, humility. That's what it means to live in a way or walk in a way that is worthy of our calling. It's in the church then that the genuineness of our love for each other is practised. Flowing on from this first point then is that the outworking of this kind of attitude is that of unity. Once again, uh, this is crucial to how the church of Jesus Christ is to relate. And this was part, if you remember John chapter 17, of Jesus' high priestly prayer, that we might be one. Why? So that the world might know, Jesus says, that you, the Father, have sent me. Isn't that interesting? When we are united here on earth, it actually reflects the gospel. It reflects that we've been united to God in heaven. Uh, Peter O'Brien, one of my old lecturers at Moore College, once wrote, to live in a manner which mars the unity of the spirit is tantamount to saying that Jesus' sacrificial death by which relationships with God and others have been restored are of no real consequence to us. Now, that's absolutely huge, isn't it? Our relationships with each other as Christians is vital. Why? Because how we relate to one another is a direct reflection on how God has first related to us. Unity, though, is costly, friends, in that we have to die to ourselves. 
And I think what's really costly is that we have to die to our own pride. We have to personally be committed to changing. You see, the problem is not out there, is it? As we've talked about before, it's not that other people make you angry or make you frustrated. It's that frustration and anger in your heart. The problem's in here. It's in our own hearts. It's in our own minds. It's what our own motivations war within us. Do you know, I think, if I can be frank, the real reason why many people give up on church? It's because it exposes too much about themselves. There was this little boy who came up to me after I taught scripture once at school and he said, Mr. Powell, could I please be in your class? I said, why do you want to change classes? He said, because all the children in my class are making me misbehave. (laughs) (laughs) You see the problem with what he said? He thought that his bad behaviour was a result of the people in his class. They didn't cause him to be naughty. He was naughty in and of himself. I was a little bit frightened to have him in my class, the effect that he would have. The reason he was naughty was because naughtiness was inside him. Other people weren't making him naughty. It was his own sin. And relating to other people was simply bringing that to the surface. Given time, probably a short time, he would have manifested the same sort of characteristics in my class as well. And so I told him to stay right where he was and ask God, change your heart. And even better, grow in godliness. Meeting with and getting to know other Christians has a way of exposing you like nothing else. You know, there's an old saying, if you find a perfect church, you must leave immediately because you'll spoil it. But even better, if you find a church that is normal and healthy, there'll there'll be hardship. Persevere. Because that's God's will for you. It's God's will for you to grow in grace. Now, don't get me wrong, there are times to leave churches and move on, and especially as we saw in Thailand, if there's false teaching or whatever, unfaithfulness. But 99% of the time, it just means bearing with one another in love. It exposes, I think, our self-righteousness that creeps in and makes you think you're better than everybody else or something like that. The brilliance of what Paul writes, though, is that as believers, we can't be like that. We can't think that way because we're all all the same. Have a look at verses 4 to 6. Paul lists no less than seven things that we all have in common. We are one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, finally, one God. Every different facet of the Christian faith here is covered. There is never any hierarchy or pyramid of achievement or merit or status as a follower of Jesus. We're just all on a level playing field. We're all treated by God in exactly the same way. We're all saved exactly the same way. That doesn't mean that we're all absolutely identical. I know that. We're all different. 
Because even though we're united in Christ, there is also a great diversity. God gives different gifts, at least. He sees that. But the gifts are given, the diversity is there to reach unity. And that has to do, I think, with the sovereign purpose and decision of the risen and exalted Lord Jesus Christ. But just take a look at verse 8. See, Paul quotes from Psalm 68, which we read from earlier. And the point that he makes here is that when Jesus ascended into heaven, he not only received gifts, he also distributed them. That is, he captured people from the world and he also gave people gifts for the world. And that's why Paul calls himself, I think, the Lord's prisoner back in verse 1. He's a prisoner because he is one of the captives that Jesus has caught and given. Jesus has caught people, though not in some you know, megalomatic, proud way like a tyrant would. No, Jesus has captured people in the sense of he's redeemed them, of rescuing them out of the kingdom of darkness and bringing them into the kingdom of light so that we might be also be used in turn of bringing people to him. But then just take a look at verse 12 to 13. By the way, notice that ministries like the apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers are not meant to stand above the body of Christ, but you might want to say beneath it. They are this diverse range of servants who are designed to build up and to equip believers or the greater body of believers for works of service. Paul says in verse 12, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. You know, I think there's been this tragic tendency within the Christian church, though, to unfortunately draw attention to the gifted people rather than the purpose to which Jesus gifted them in the first place. And that is people with these gifts are seen in and of themselves um, as an end in and of themselves rather than as a means to an end which everyone else is equipped. You know, we've often seen this. Presbyterian Church is probably just as guilty as everybody else. I'm sure it is. The minister does the ministry and everybody else supports him. But I think when people think like that, that's a great tragedy. I heard a very popular and gifted minister say once that people didn't stay at church where he was the minister because of his preaching. He'd been there for many, many years, probably one of the most gifted and well-known preachers in Sydney. And he said, yep, he, over the years he'd noticed that no one stayed because of his preaching. When he interviewed them or they gave their testimony, do you know the reason why he said most people said they stayed at a church? It was the people because they were made to feel welcomed, because they felt genuinely loved. Now, hopefully the minister, the evangelist, or everybody else helps you to do that. It's a great reminder that we should never reduce our faith to what we do for an hour or so on a Sunday. It's just one small, yeah, significant part of it, but it's not the whole part. The real work of ministry actually starts when the service finishes. <laughs> and 
As a minister, I'm not the only one who does ministry and you know, everyone else passively receives it. My role is hopefully to equip you to do the works of service the rest of the week. You're at the coalface, really. So charity, so there's charity in the body of Christ, there's unity in the body of Christ, there's diversity in the body of Christ, but finally the end result will be that we all reach maturity within his body as well. That's the ultimate goal for Christ's church, isn't it? It's that we will be mature and complete. That we wouldn't be duped by all of the false teaching that is out there in the world. It struck me while I was away that God sends out labourers into his harvest. The harvest is plentiful, the Lord Jesus says. The workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest. And you know what Jesus does in the very next chapter? Jesus sends labourers into his harvest. That means Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. And by his grace, he's sovereignly raising up and sending out workers into his harvest to reap the, the fruit, the crop that he is growing But do you know who also sends workers out into the harvest? The devil. The devil is just as much a missionary as God. He knows how effective it is. And as such, the devil is going to try and do everything he can to make us waver in our faith. And it's why it's so important that what happens in positions like behind this sacred desk, is so important, isn't it? Satan would love nothing more than to infiltrate churches and to twist their teaching and to turn others away from Jesus. One of, I think, the devil's choicest arsenals or weapons is false teaching. Our job then is to speak the truth in love to one another. To love and not... Speak truth is to not love. To keep on reminding and exhorting each other as to the truths of God's word. But to not do it in a gentle or patient or forbearing way is not true. We're only as strong and as healthy as a church as we are as good and faithful in applying God's word to one another's lives. As the reformers used to say, the word of God does the work of God. But it's never divorced from the people of God. So let's be courteous as well as courageous in speaking God's word to one another. There is a sense, friends, in which you can sometimes win the point and lose the person. And you've lost the whole thing. So let's humbly and even gratefully receive it when brothers and sisters in Christ exhort us on to a deeper spiritual maturity. If I can say something as a, one of the pastors here with my fellow elders, you know, sometimes the hardest but most loving thing that you can hear is a word of rebuke. It's hard, isn't it, when that happens? But it's what we need. And can I just exhort us when that comes, from whoever it comes, because we are the body of Christ speaking to one another, don't immediately take offence, but immediately stop and pray and ask the Lord, search 
Search your own heart before God. Is there truth in it? Is that something I, I need to hear? I'd like to leave you, though, with a question. Uh, and that is, it sounds like it's coming from Jesus, because it is, do you love the church? Or maybe that should be, do you seek to love the church like Christ loves the church? That can be a hard and even painful question to answer sometimes because as forgiven sinners, we can still hurt one another. We can be guilty of doing things which tear others down rather than build others up. And maybe we need to confess that to God this morning and ask for his cleansing and forgiveness. Because as Jesus said to the Apostle Paul when he was persecuting the church, Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Which means that if you hate the church, or you, maybe you might want to go that far, maybe you just don't like the church, then you don't like Jesus. Because it's his body. We can definitely pray, all pray that he would renew and strengthen us to be committed to this goal. But let's go from here this morning with a renewed resolve to seek out opportunities, and I mean this practically, of how we can bless and encourage one another, how we can build each other up. Now, maybe that could be you could write a card to another believer or an email, or you could make a phone call. But whatever it is, be deliberate, be intentional, make a conscious effort to think, how can I build up the church? Spend some time in prayer for someone whom you found difficult to love or maybe be in fellowship with. Spend more time praying for that particular person than complaining or whining or processing that with your spouse or friend. Build up the church. For that is what the Lord God Almighty is himself committed to doing. Well, on that note, why don't we spend some time in prayer? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for speaking to us through your word this morning. And we ask for, we thank you that you so loved the church, uh, that your body, that you redeemed it through your blood. We thank you that you, in your grace, have included us in your body. We pray for your forgiveness, Lord, when we uh, have treated your body more like Saul than like Jesus did. And so, Lord, we ask for your forgiveness and we pray for the move, uh, the empowering of your Holy Spirit to build up your church, to seek to build up one another, not to tear each other down. And Father, we, uh, we pray, uh, we thank you, Lord, that you are going to do this because we know it's your will and we know you're gracious and you're good and you're generous. And so, Lord, we commit ourselves into your hands, looking for your spirit to move in us uh, and to transform us into the likeness of your Son. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.